Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Spending Time Podcast. I am joined by special guest Paul Ziff. Paul is someone I've known for several years now. He has three decades of experience in the luxury watch industry here in America. He has worked for a number of different brands. Paul, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Ariel. Looking forward to our conversation. So for everyone who is watching along, not just listening along, they'll notice that I'm at the Mad Paris website. And to explain why I'm at the Mad Paris website, this is a Rolex and other luxury watch customizer that is your your current project, something that you're working on. Tell us why, with your experience and all the things you know, what's appealing about a, a, a watch customizer right now? Well, it's a, a project that I was just offered and accepted uh, recently. Uh, Luke Paramount, who I work with at uh, Richemont, he recruited me for that position, uh, called me recently. Um, he had left there. He's doing consulting in luxury out of Dubai and uh, asked me if I'd be interested in taking a look at this for the U.S. And I think it's very, very interesting. We, we see studies that the future of luxury is definitely leaning toward customization, people that want something a little bit different, a little bit personalized. Um, I think that uh, Mad Paris does beautiful work. They, they warranty the customizations for life. Um, and I love the fact that the watch is, is customized but maintains the DNA of the original watch. So if you have a, a special uh, Submariner, uh, that's that's customized and personalized. It still looks like a Submariner, so that's important to me. And I think um, you know you hit it. The word interesting. I'm looking for interesting projects, and and to me this is interesting. And when it comes down to it, interesting is what we all want in in our life when we spend luxury dollars, right? Nobody wants to spend luxury money on boring. Yes, <laughs> I I think boring is boring. So. You know, I think it's interesting you're talking about the, the, the future of, of luxury is, is, is customization. What I would say is that there is a rejection uh, from consumers that luxury has been appended to the term exclusive for so long, yet exclusivity in many ways has been quite hard to find. And so there's been, and the industry, of course, speaking of Rolex, has been creating uh, <laughs> aggressively or otherwise a new sense of exclusivity. And having a watch that you designed yourself uh, or is one of a kind for sure is exclusive. Wouldn't you agree? A hundred percent. And, you know, I think it just depends on what the person wants. There's no right or wrong. You know, most people will be more than happy having the classic, wonderful Daytona or Submariner. But there's a percentage of people, uh, just like at Mercedes-Benz, that want the AMG version. You know, they want the bigger engine, the more horsepower. They want the cosmetic differences. So, um, you know, it's just whatever you like and whatever you can afford. So in the background, I'm going to be sort of perusing this website, but thanks for telling us about this project. So the reason that we're chatting is not to talk about Mad Paris per se, but to talk a little bit more about the watch industry, especially from your perspective on the management side. Maybe we'll call it the brand side. I have had a lot of conversations with consumers, watchmakers, watch retailers, but there's not a lot of been not been a lot of people from the brand side who have been uh, you know wanted to chat with me on spending time or in articles and things like that. And part of the reason is people are afraid to talk. You know, you're you're a, you're a free agent now, so you can do it. But it's interesting how I've had a lot of offline conversations with people. And they're like, "You're not going to publish anything, are you? You're not going <laughs> to mention my name, are you?" And I'm like, "You know, is is are, are you are you gonna are, are you worried that uh, someone's going to assassinate you or something like that? Like, where does explain to me or maybe to the audience why it is that the watch industry, which again is not involved with state secrets or or high technology or anything like that, is is so secretive. Help help people understand why that is. Well, I don't think it's all secretive. I, I think that what you're hitting at, I think it's a very it's a very good point. The companies that are successful are authentic. Their their backstories are authentic. Their marketing is speaking to those backstories, so they're dealing in truth. Um, and then you also have some companies that have come along, which are kind of inventions of marketing. And um, and I think those companies would tend to be more secretive. You know, they don't want anyone to see behind the curtain. Um, and you know, they're also you know maybe 
they can't feel comfortable justifying the prices they charge. Um, so I, I think when you have a company that's transparent and authentic, those are the companies that are winning in the end. And, and I don't think that they are so secretive. And they, and they also, but you have to admit the industry doesn't always make it easy to know which is which. I mean, Rolex, for example, is very secretive, but I think we would agree is very authentic. Right. Yeah, I the, I would say they're the most authentic, and and Patek is is extremely authentic. And the recent study came out showing that they own seventy percent of the ten thousand dollar and above market. So, um, as far as why Rolex is so secretive, I don't know. I I, I have no idea um, why that is, but their um, their watch is authentic. So tell me about the first job you had. In, in, in the luxury watch industry. You know, what was that like? And tell us a little bit about maybe culture shock or some of the adjustments you had to make. Because you're an American, and maybe I guess I'm asking the first time that you had to primarily work with non-Americans and what that was like for you in the luxury watch industry. Well, I, I started the industry at Concord back in kind of the pioneering days. And we would, we would take our bag of a uh, million dollars worth of gold watches uh, on the road with us and go see door to door the better jewelers in town and sell them. Um, and uh, it was a fun time. It, it was a very adventurous time. It wasn't it wasn't that quote unquote luxury business that it became when the Europeans came in because the company Concord I worked for was basically an American company owned by Movado, correct? Yeah, it's now the Movado Group, but it was uh, founded by Jerry Grimberg, who actually immigrated to America from Cuba mm-hmm. um, and really in my mind put the better watch industry on the map he was so ahead of his time he he was constantly pouring back 20 25 percent of the sales back into advertising always and uh, if sales if sales slumped he advertised more something that the companies today I think really should take a look at so so <laughs> because they don't operate Jerry is a bit of a legend right the Grinbergs is still a family that that my understanding controls the Movado group and I I, I fortunately never got to meet Jerry myself but he there, people still say things uh, about him in a, in, in a in a way that's you know it, he's held with reverence what where did he get some of his experience where did he know to do things like that because i couldn't agree with you more but i think sort of the subtext of what we're talking about is this guy proved that there was a strategy that worked really well yet much of those strategies have been wholly abandoned despite the fact that some of these groups and i'll ask you questions about that spend huge amounts of money on what i'll i'll say is professional consulting why is it that they spend so much time and effort on professional consulting, yet they still seem to miss very well-established lessons of success in the past? Explain that to me. Well, Jerry Grimberg and others like him, in my estimation, are entrepreneurs. And you know whether you're born that way or you learn it, I don't know. But Jerry's story coming here, he was working for Omega in Cuba and left uh, Cuba before Castro came into power came to America and went to Omega, where they promptly rejected him, um, probably because his English was very bad. And and he decided at that time, then he'll he'll buy his own watch company, and he, he purchased Concord. He also became the agent for Piaget and Corum. He went door to door to retailers selling Piaget watches, and the story, as he told it to me many times, was that he was rejected over and over again because they told him his watches are too expensive. Um, then he decided, why not use that as his advertising slogan? So he took an ad out in the New York Times for Piaget, the most expensive watch in the world. Wow. That ad triggered sales, and the rest is history. And as far as what he did in terms of continually investing in promotion and promotion and promotion, I even saw the challenge at that company, and I think this answers your question. When companies get to a certain size, then you have the consultants, the financial people, and everybody else coming in, basically telling the entrepreneur why what he's doing is not correct. And I've seen it time and time again, and they look at a 20 or 25% advertising budget and say, you're crazy, we'll make more money by shrinking it. And if you give in to that, you lose the genius of the entrepreneur and 
your business suffers. And I think that's the reason. I think entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs, financial people are financial people, they should work together, but the financial people should not decide where the money is spent. The entrepreneur should ask the financial person or tell them, I need this amount of money, tell me where I can get it from in my company. So what, what in your opinion, and again, we're, we're going on a lot of different you know, tan- tangents here, which I think are important because they tell a bigger story. So I want to encourage the audience to, to sort of play along here because we're moving in a lot of different directions. You are talking about something which is really important to the watch industry right now, and this is something that I talk about. And I say that the watch industry, especially from the European side, is run by accountants, run by uh, uh, financial people who are invested in making a profit, creating efficiency, and uh, I guess you could say financial management. None of that includes uh, entrepreneurialism, creativity, uh, passion for the product, uh, marketing. None of, those, none of that experience is built in their education. How did it go from having someone successful, many successful entrepreneurs, build things up only to be taken over by someone who's the exact opposite? How did that happen? It's a great question, Ariel. I, I think that you know when people give in to experts and and start doubting their own uh, native sense of how to create a business, um, you know they can be beaten down and they can give in. And sure, it sure sounds right. Uh, people with degrees and everything else telling you you know why you're wrong. Um, I, I I think that for most of the great companies that were formed by entrepreneurs. I don't know that any financial expert would have said, yes, you should start this company. They probably would have said, you're crazy. It's never going to work. I mean, look, look, at, then, look at a company like MBNF. I would say that you know, it's, a, it's a very exclusive product, you know, going to what we're talking about. Uh, Max Booster started as an entrepreneur. Um, and you know, he's, he's full of stories about how things that he did, other people told him wouldn't work or it didn't make sense on paper. But you're right. You, you replace someone like him with a finance person, and that entire brand will collapse in a year or two. Yeah, look, an artist is an artist. You know, an artist sits with a canvas or a great photographer uh, looks at a shot. That's not something that a lot of people can do. And, and, you know, I think the difference is that the great ideas are mostly by singular people, not by committee and not by studies. And, um, you know, I think that's something that that we need to keep in mind in our industry. And I think that's why sometimes the family owned businesses, which I've been fortunate to work for as well. I worked at Chopard for many years. Um, You know, that was a company that was so dynamic that was making watches and jewelry that they loved to make because they wanted to make them. So so I'm looking at an article here. It's 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 on the Movado Group's website. Um, it's from Watch Time Magazine from back in 2003, and it's 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 a look at uh, at Jerry Grinberg. I'm not sure if you've seen this. I actually haven't seen this. This was this is a little bit before I started spending a lot of time reading about watches. Um, and this is I think back when you know Watch Time was doing a lot of really great you know journalism in the space and profiling good stuff. And there's a statement here that says only in America. Um, and it's true because a lot of these entrepreneurs that we're talking about, Grinberg and otherwise, took something that was not necessarily American, like a, like a Swiss or European luxury product, but made it massive because of something they did in America. You know, tell me a little bit more, add some more meat to that of, of what was this ability to take something popular or take something that had potential and build it in America? What was it about the American market that made that possible? Well, I think that when you look at someone like like Jerry Grimberg, he had, think about he had the foresight in the early 1980s to put a $15,000 18-karat gold Piaget watch on television in an ad on the, on the wrist of, uh, of an athlete or put a Concorde on the wrist of Jimmy Connors or, you know, we used, we used celebrities back then that was, you know, wasn't being done. So you had television, you had celebrities. He was really cutting edge. Um, and I would say this, that at that time, arrogance was no part of luxury watches. That seems unfathomable. Explain. <laughs> well, you know, because somebody wanted a nice watch 
you know, you didn't feel like you needed to appeal to a part of them to make them feel like they were better than anyone else. It, it was it was for a guy that just wanted a nice watch that he felt good about. So it was, a, yes, it was they, a very personal sense of reward. You were doing it for yourself as opposed to others. That's what I'm hearing. You're doing it for yourself. Now, look, they're status symbols, okay? Be, status symbol in the way that you look at something a person wears to determine their status. You know, we all do it. We look at a car someone drives. We look at uh, the, the watch they wear. Women look at the handbags that they carry. And for someone you don't know, it's a way to size them up. So they had status with them. But it's different today. It was an American status. It wasn't, it wasn't this European idea of status. And frankly, I think it was a more down to earth. It was like, yeah, this watch is expensive. It's really well made. I really love it. You know, you know what I'm saying? No, I, I do for sure. And I think, I mean, this is, this is a much longer, larger conversation. I think we have space for it in, in, in this conversation. But the idea is how this the traditional difference between how old world and new world uh, people who can afford luxury buy it and I think sort of this more old world perception you know, when you and I have traveled to Europe there is this sense of going to some hotel or cafe in place and you have to come across a certain way you have to show that you made it like a bunch of other people there's definitely much more value on asserting status especially in sort of this old world sense of how you use luxury. The new world sense, like we said, is more about celebrating your own success. It's not about keeping up with the Joneses or trying to sh demonstrate that you belong, either rightfully or in, 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 in a less right way, within the status, but it's more about rewarding your, your own success. It's about saying, I've done something good. I want to be able to reward myself because I was able to achieve something, which is goes back to the sort of traditional notion about America as the land of opportunity, where you have the opportunity to become bigger than where you came from, as opposed to trying to look like you're at a place that you may or may not be. And it's it's a it's a nuanced difference, but I think it is it is it is a real thing, and it's very different about how people use luxury products in the old world and the new, new world. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? No, I agree. I, th I think I think basically what you're talking about is a cultural difference, and I think that's something that the the Swiss industry, you know, really needs to look at. Is that you know, America is not uh, France, and it's not China, and it and it's not anywhere else. It's America, and our culture is a little bit different, and our business practices are different, and the way we want to be treated is different, and so and our motivation for buying products is a little bit different. So, you know, I think that was another thing and that you brought up in your article which i definitely agree with is is they they lost touch with that a little bit so let, let, let's talk about that a little bit because i think this is important and again if you haven't read my article it's on forbes and it talks about how the watch industry is systematically disassembling its operations in america very rl adams title but the idea was to show how the watch industry in america for for luxury swiss watches uh or european watch for that matter has been um I don't want to say word mismanaged. That's oh, that's sort of a, a oversimplification, but has been actually broken down. The things that were working have been taken apart, such that it's much more of an empty shell today compared to what it used to be. And 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 that's within the context that America not only remains but continues to be one of the most important markets for watches. And so there's this kind of strange contradiction between how important the market is, the potential is and the amount of investment in that market. And people like you and me are trying to figure out why. Now, yes, the simple answer is cultural differences. But I want to know why that is. So my, one of my questions for you is, you've been in-house at a brand, many brands, dealing a lot with some of the European stakeholders. What are some of the most comp common complaints they have about the American market or, or working in, the, in, in, in America? Like, what do they say about, about us that, that is, is interesting to think about? Well, I think, again, their idea of, of their own brand, how they see the brand, they're, sometimes they're not able to see it through the eyes of the American consumer or from the eyes of the American marketplace. So, of course, everyone should be proud of the brand that they, they represent. Um, in America, our stores sometimes are more basic in appearance. You know, when you walk in... in um, 
you know, in some fancy streets in London or in Paris, you see the most amazing stores. So sometimes in the suburbs of America, our stores are more basic, but that doesn't mean that, that the products that they carry or the service they get is, is any less. And I think that sometimes um, they get frustrated that the product's not displayed properly or their product doesn't have a big enough um, showcase. But these are some of the things that, that, that they get upset about. They get frustrated because of presentation despite the market saying, no, 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 this is fine. This is how we like it. Look, watches are being sold. Yeah, yeah. They're more, more about the, the, um, the presentation sometimes than about, okay, is it effective? And is what's interesting is the alternative to that. So let's say something American comes to Europe, and it's, it's popular, and some of the things that are popular in Europe that are American are not great, like fast food and stuff like that. But, you know, when, when these fast food chains go to Europe or anything else American, um, you know, there's, there's, there's never any complaint about adapting needs to the market, right? It, it, you need to do well in that market. You need to understand the market needs. Um, and, and again, there's there's complaints that Europeans make about American things there, size. Um, sometimes there's a certain level of refinement they don't like. But to come here and to say not only we need to sell watches here, but they need to be sold in this way, it's it's a very strange type of psychology, right? Because you can't always have a counter to it because they're like, this is my brand. This is the way I want to do it. I don't care what anyone says. And you're just sort of left kind of shaking your head and you're like, well, do you want to sell watches or do you not want to sell watches? And sometimes that question is thrown around a lot by you and me and other people. Um, and when presented with this notion of like, are you just not interested in selling watches to the market? What do they say? Well, again, I, I think that they feel that it goes part and parcel. You know, they'll, they'll sell more watches. I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, in certain companies, you know, it's mandatory that the sales associate put gloves on to, to show a watch. And that could be telling them, <laughs> I, I've, been in, I've been in some companies where they wanted someone to put gloves on to show a $1,000 watch. And, you know, my, my rebuttal to that was, you're, you're giving a, a mixed message. If it's a $1,000 watch and you're putting gloves on, <laughs> I, I think you're trying to convince them it's something it isn't and you're not being genuine about it. Or, or alternatively, this is something which is meant to be durable and last for more than a couple of hours, right? If you, if you need to handle it with gloves, what does that say about the durability promise? Exactly. But, 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 you know, again, I'm sensitive to where they're coming from. They're coming from the point of, of you don't want to break the luxury uh, aura. And they feel that that's important for the luxury aura. But in America, we're more like, hey, it's, it's durable. It's strong. I mean, you know, I use the example, you know, you walk into an, an Apple store and it's open, it's inviting and everyone's touching and grabbing and playing with the products, you know. That's the type of thing I think we're missing in, in the Swiss watch industry. In the, for a retailer to be able to create that kind of inviting uh, presence where people just feel free to walk in and touch and, and feel and play with it, even if they're not going to buy that day. Oh, I, I, and, I totally, I totally yeah. agree. And look, I want, I want to go back to some of the points that I made in that article just for people listening who, who may not be familiar with it. One of the things I said that that the American luxury watch industry, and I don't mean American brands, but I mean the European brands doing business here for, the, for a long time and a successful time was was run by a mixture of people who come from different backgrounds, a lot of them Europeans, as well as Americans. And there's been this systematic uh, removal of American managers, especially running the European brands here. It goes back to the sort of sense of control um, and the sense of the brand isn't being run the way we want it to be run. Now, Americans obviously want the industry to do well here. They want sales to happen. And of course, there's probably good advice mixed with bad advice. But when did you start to see this relatively aggressive approach where it said, you know, we understand our, our brand best, meaning, you know, the, the Swiss, for example, we're going to run it even though we don't necessarily understand the ins and outs of your country. When did that, that start? I think it really started at, around the Great Recession, that time. 
where where the companies you know almost didn't know how to react to it. It, it was a very difficult time in the watch industry, um, and most companies made the an error in cutting uh, cutting people, cutting budgets, cutting everything, and taking the management back centrally to Switzerland. Um, and I think that's where that's where it began. Why did they think that was a good idea? What was their rationale? I think their rationale was was financial, um, short-term financial. You know, one of the things I've always admired about Rolex is that that I it's my perception, and you may know better than me, but my perception is that in difficult times they advertise more, and that was Jerry Grimberg's uh, mantra, and. When you come out of the difficult times and you were out there grabbing a bigger piece of the pie in advertising, you're going to emerge much stronger. If you shrunk, what's going to happen when the market comes back? You're much smaller. And this was a lesson, I think, that certain brands found out in the 70s and 80s, I believe, which was a time when big companies, um, you know, there was there was ups and downs in the markets. And there were some companies, like you said, that advertised heavily during down periods and they recognized that because a lot of other companies were not they were able to have a greater share of voice which translated into uh, more market dominance so I think I think the logic of that is sound to you and me and obviously Jerry and some others yet that seems to be missed on a lot of a lot of the the decision makers these days and right now there's a vast vast pulling away of marketing. So when you were still in-house at some of these big brands and you saw this happening, what were some of the most immediate effects that you saw on your side of the business? And again, your side of the business was was making sure that these watches were in retail environments. What were some of the first things, the negative things you started seeing happening when there was this wholesale uh, pulling away of advertising and marketing spending? Well, our, our business shrunk further. I mean, we became less, less visible in the marketplace. So now, now you have the dual uh, penalty of a, of a poor economy and less promotion. So, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that you're, you're just going to keep getting smaller and smaller. And then, and then it became almost this, this homogeneous management system where Switzerland was managing globally every market as if it was the same. And, uh, for instance, when I, was at, when I started at Zenith, I had tremendous freedom uh, how to spend my marketing dollars and which products to advertise and put in my own strategy and it was extremely successful. We uh, 4x the business in six years and, and we became the number one subsidiary. So I was really allowed to just you know take my, my budget and spend it how I felt best and uh, it might have been different than the, the fellow in Japan did. What, what, so what, was, what was the rationale, though? Because you, you say money and things like that. And, and again, this is I, – I, I really don't know. I, I, I don't understand the perspective of them. Why would Switzerland, with the same amount of manpower, decide they want to take over the management of many markets? I mean, I don't <clears> – <throat> if they thought it was a good idea initially, today it's translated in, in a lot of res restricted market share – a lot of frustration, a lot less people to help manage the brands, right? Because if no one's allowed to make decisions, people are just waiting around. It seems to me that there would be sort of a, a wholesale uh, loss um, on business in a lot of fronts. Yet, increasingly today, there's even more and more restriction. I, I believe that in the future there'll be there'll be a little bit loosening. But you know, try to. Do you have any guesses on on what they were thinking and why they still think this is a good approach to d manage centrally without having really any ability for individual markets to make decisions? I think it was a combination of things. I think it, it was a, a knee jerk reaction. Uh, the sky was falling. Um, you know, they they had a, a tremendous amount of inventory. Uh, the economy tanked. And they didn't know what they were going to do next. So I think they, 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 meaning most of the brands, I think went into kind of preservation mode, like survival preservation. Mm -hmm. Not every brand did that. And, and I think the brands that you see that are strong today didn't do that. They, they steadied the ship and they stayed true to course and they know that business does have its ups and downs in the economies. Um, but they stayed true to their cause and true to their management and, and you know, these are the brands that today are dominating the industry. So I think it was a knee-jerk reaction. It was financially driven as well, and it was fear-based. 
What's their hostility to communication? Because I think advertising and marketing is about communication. And in general, and, and again, I'll possibly upset some people for saying this, but I'm going to say that I believe European luxury watch brands have a hostility to open and authentic communication, regular communication, speaking to any particular consumer. On a basic level, I could say maybe they're concerned about upsetting people, but then again, they don't ever seem to be upset about upsetting people. So tell me what you guess is their animosity animosity communicating. I'm not sure I understand the question. Communicating in so what way? So I, I say that advertising and marketing is a form of communication. Mm-hmm. And I understand the monetary aspect of it, but they, they know, at least I think that they understand that when you advertise effectively, you get sales. And so I have boiled it down to my head as being an animosity to communicate. I know that when, they, when, when someone at the HQ level, for example, would speak to someone at a subsidiary level, like in America, they don't even explain the rationale for decisions. They're just like, do this. That lack of explanation is a lack of communication. So I am presenting, I might be a little bit exaggerated, but I'm basically saying I believe there's a hostility to communicating overall. I'm trying to figure out why that is. I, I think they're frustrated. Some brands are frustrated with advertising because, because they can't measure it and they're, they don't understand, you know, that they, they can't see exactly what they're getting out of it. I think they're probably having to adjust to the market. You know, back in the days with, uh, again, with Jerry Grimberg, it was all magazines. We were advertising in, in Vogue and Town and & Country and Sports Illustrated. We were advertising all magazines. It was magazines and newspapers. You know, and today it's such a complicated um, market. You know, do you do more online? There's not any magazines anymore. Do you still do newspaper? Uh, do you do TV? I mean, Rolex is, is one of the few, I think, in the high end that's still doing television. Um, so I, I, I think it's it's that they're not sure. They don't know how, they don't know how much they're going to get return on investment. Um, there is, I think, the financial aspect that finance is running a lot of the brands in, in some way so that they're capped into how much they can spend on advertising um, and that they're confused or not sure about the market now, in terms of where. I, I hear what you're saying, and, and I think that makes sense. I would I would add to that by saying a few things. First of all, and, and again, I want to hear your perspective. When they were advertising in just magazines and newspapers and things like that, there was no enhanced way of measuring it. There was less options to advertise, sure, but th- it's not like they had ways of measuring the results then that they don't have now. Now there's a lot of information that purports to measure, which I think is a lot of false alarms and red herrings, and I think that a lot of the metrics associated with a- with advertising today is basically bogus and doesn't mean anything, and, and their expectations of how things are supposed to perform are, are silly or immature or just s- simply unsophisticated. But they, and so they were comfortable at one point having uh, unmeasurable advertising, yet today they seem, seem to still have, they have a big problem with that. So that's one thing. And two, going back to what you said about being run by an entrepreneur, um, someone who's an entrepreneur knows they need to communicate their brand. They're not necessarily interested in saying how does each dollar translate back to sales because you look at overall boost, right? You know that if I'm spending a bunch of money on advertising yet year after year, things are still going bad. I'm going to first look at what the problem is with the product, right? Because I know people are learning about it. And only only a few steps later am I going to say, well, maybe there's something wrong with the actual message that we're sending. But it's never like, oh, we're, we're, we're advertising and that's in, and we're not getting sales. The problem is the message we're sending. It's, of course, nothing else. You know what I'm saying? Res, res, respond to some of that. Help, help me understand. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, well going back to, to when it was magazine advertising, again, it, it was just a – it was just a few entrepreneurs. It was Jerry Grimberg at, at, uh, with Concord, Piaget, and Quorum. It was Ben Kaiser, who was super successful, great entrepreneurial uh, genius doing Bama Mercier. Um, and it really wasn't too many other brands. So the characters have changed. It's different people now. You didn't have LVMH. You didn't have the Swatch Group. You, d- you didn't have all these groups, okay? So I think that the individual entrepreneur was doing it that way back then, and now you have groups, uh, conglomerates, that are doing it differently today. Okay, now you still have some family-owned businesses like Patek um, and and Chopard, 
but in the main, what you're what you're talking about is is the big the two big groups. So you you brought up a very interesting point right now, and that is it used to be run by individuals, and now there's a group. And when you have a group, you have joint decision making. When you have joint decision making, if you 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 either just go with the strongest personality or you go with some type of evidence-backed decision-making, and that therein lies the issue. You cannot have evidence to support creativity, because if it's creative, by definition, it hasn't been done before, and you can't predict the outcome. If you predict the outcome, it's something which has been done before. So you either copy and hope for the best, because there's some type of track record of how someone else did, or you get creative and do something that has the potential of being really good, but you can never predict it in advance. And that just doesn't seem to work very well with, I'll call it group, corporate, stakeholder decision-making. Would you agree or disagree? I agree. And let me give you a story that illustrates that aspect. And I go back again to my days at um, what's now the Movado Group. So when I was there and I was running Concord, Jerry Grimberg came in one day and he made an announcement, I'm going to buy Movado. And we all looked at him Quizzically, the, that Movado was not successful at all. It was really uh, struggling. It uh, looked like a loser to all of us. And we couldn't figure out, the other management people and myself, you know, kind of whispering, saying, why is he doing such a thing? And when we asked him, he looked at us and he said, I'm not buying Movado. I'm buying the museum dial. And this guy saw something that the rest of us didn't see. What did he see exactly? He saw the museum dial as a pillar to create an entire line around, and and it was a it's an iconic look, and it's something that nobody could copy, and he saw that he didn't see that the brand was failing and the brand wasn't a good watch and it wasn't didn't have good distribution. He saw the potential success in that one dial, and it, it turned out to be a very very successful dial and I would say that my my when I think of of not necessarily lu I guess luxury luxury watches in the 1990s I think of the museum dial I think of nothing but the museum dial it's it's an iconic watch and and he's been hugely successful uh, with Movado so he made a decision to do something that you know made as you said other people scratch their heads he said the museum dial is, is important. I'm actually on Movado's website right now. I haven't been to Movado's website in quite some time. There's a brand that really kind of went off the radar. But mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the Horowitz design, the, there's the famous story around it that has been executed in a bazillion ways. But this one individual who understood watches said this had potential. There was, they didn't need to do a feasibility study. There was no reports. There was no uh, people to convince he as a passionate person in this category had a good feeling about it and made the decision that turned out to be right. No amount of market studies would have been able to justify his position in my opinion, right? I, I Exactly right and I think if you look back um, at the history of, of the great brands that, that you write about and your readers love to read about, I think they were all founded in the same way. Yeah, yeah and, and, and I look at LVMH who I think benefits greatly from having someone like Jean-Claude Biver. Not everyone is a fan of all the decisions he makes, but you cannot disagree that he is a person that has genuine passion for the product. He's a known collector himself, and he definitely thinks like the consumer. And if you think like the consumer, you're going to at least attempt to create products and communication that is for you because you are a consumer and ideally other people like you. Whereas if you're trying to make financial decisions or if you're trying to go from the other way around like we want to make a profit how do we get there let's let's do this strategy you're inevitably going to miss that formula that that says before you make any decisions let's make sure somebody out there actually wants this it's like they don't ask themselves do people want this message do people want this product they just sort of start with the position of we want to make a profit well, you know, that, that is a liability in, in some companies. And the other thing, you, getting back to what you asked me about the, the frustration, there's a big frustration in Switzerland with sales training. And I also think that 
in, the, in terms of, of uh, training the retail sales associate on how to sell their product. Let's explain to the audience who's a consumer like where that fits in because you and I know what that means, but, but tell them how sales training affects how they may buy watches. So, you know, one of your, one of your listeners you know, may go into a multi-brand store. And in that multi-brand store, they, they're greeted by a sales associate. And that sales associate, to, to one degree or another, is comfortable and knowledgeable about one brand, many brands, all the brands. And, and when you are looking at that watch, he's able to convey the important points about that brand so that you feel comfortable in purchasing it, or at least you leave the store more educated than when you walked in. In Switzerland, their idea of what, what I've fought and I've changed here is that their idea of sales training is product knowledge, more and more product knowledge, meaning the, the intricacies of the watch. The issue with that is that, first of all, while a client wants to know uh, something about the watch, I draw a parallel to like if you were going to buy a Porsche. Do you really want the technician in the back opening the hood in front of you and explaining to you ad nauseum how the engine works? Is that your motivation of buying it? Mm, not so, by the time I'm at a dealership, no. Probably not, right? Probably more important to you is they throw you the keys and say, let's go for a ride. Yeah, I want to have an experience. I want to see if I like this thing. You want to have an experience. And so you, everybody's got a different motivation of buy, why they're going to buy a Porsche 911. You, you may want to buy it because um, you want to take it to, to a track and you want to learn how to, you know, how to drive a race, uh, on a racetrack. Somebody else may want it because it's a convertible and they just love the feeling of driving on a winding road in a convertible. Somebody else may want it because it's one very sexy looking car and they like the way it looks with them in it. You know, who, who knows? Okay. It's, it, it's up to you why you want that. Switzerland misses that point sometimes on sales training. And I, I tailored my programs. As a matter of fact, I'm right now in the midst of a project to develop effective sales training for, for retail staff on the things that really matter to find out what's the motivation for the client in terms of buying that watch. Every company comes in and you could almost close your eyes and listen to the training and you won't know what company it is because you'll hear Swiss made, sapphire crystal, anti-reflective coating, surgical uh, grade steel, stainless steel, on and on and on. But ask yourself this, what's the motivation to buy? You're already looking at a product that's $10,000, $15,000 or even $5,000. Right away, that price point tells you you're buying a quality item. You expect it to tell accurate time. You expect it to be well-made. You're, you're spending significant dollars. So now the real trick in terms of, and I shouldn't say trick, the real secret in satisfying the client is finding out what his motivation is, what he's trying to achieve with the purchase and helping him to achieve that. There's way too many people out there that think that sales is manipulation. Sales is not manipulation. It's not being a phony. It's not getting the person to do something that you want them to do. It's satisfying that client with a product that he's going to be very happy with, and he will come back to you again and again for additional sales. You're, you're enabling their intention. That's what a good salesperson does. Yes, but you only do that by asking questions and, 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 and not just by spouting out technical information. I, I remember sometimes I actually spend very little time going to watch stores without you know being invited when people know me. You know I used to just sort of like I don't want to call it secret shopper, but I just go into a watch store, not say anything about that I work with the industry and just see what they do. And I remember there, there used to be this thing, and probably still happens today. Um, and and again I totally agree with you, but like I would look at a watch and there'd be someone on the other side that would just say. Automatic, automatic, self-winding, and I'm like, I didn't even ask a question. They would just like spout spout these terms, and I'm exactly. like, I'm like, why do you think that's the right thing to say right now? Why do you think that just mentioning something about the movement is is the right thing? Because if I know if I know what automatic means when you say it in that context, I already know how to look at the watch and make that determination. If I didn't even know what that means, that statement would mean nothing to me, and. I have found such a deficiency of the individuals in this environment having the right training. And, and part of it is a lack of training, but wouldn't you also agree that a lot of retailers, especially the chain ones, there, there isn't 
a system that is designed to make it so that any particular um, person there has the opportunity or incentive to learn like some of the ways that success is, is earned there if at all doesn't create a motivator to actually become a good watch salesperson well I think it's it's a, a lack of training it's a lack of know-how um, could be a lack of incentive you know this whole area of sales is something that people think is you know an art or you're born with it but no there's real basics about how you can be competent and successful in sales and it, it doesn't mean you're going to sell everybody I you know when I when I would uh, I did a training when I was at Showport and I was at a very prominent uh, jeweler in Long Island I had about 30 people in front of me and I was speaking about the brand and of course Showport is known for their floating diamonds it's it's, it's a part of their DNA where diamonds float around the watch they have jewelry with the diamonds just so another you're talking about the uh, the ha happy diamonds Happy Diamonds, yes, exactly right. They have Happy Sport, Happy Diamonds, exactly. And it's a um, trademarked and uh, proprietary technology to do it, actually. And I got an interesting question from a, from a sales associate. They said, um, Paul, let me ask you a question. I showed this to somebody, and they didn't like the look of the floating diamonds. What should I, how should I sell them? And I said, you should take them to a different brand. Exactly. <laughs> You know, and, and that's that's being a professional salesperson. That that's trying to satisfy the real need of that sale uh, of the um, of the customer. You should say, I'm gonna call Shopar and I'm gonna have, have him tell him to stop that. Stop moving those diamonds <laughs> around. I want them to stay in the same position on the dial because somebody had a complaint. Exactly. So that's 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 an that's an interesting experience there. Now let's 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 speak a little bit more sort of in defense of the of the watch brands we've 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 been saying some things that probably people the watch brands don't feel so great about themselves after we said it and i spend a lot of time um you know and i do it through love right because this is an industry that helps me make a living and produces a product that i like so when i when i complain about the industry it's because i think that if that thing was was resolved or made better everyone would be happier right so i i, I don't get off just com complaining to people but I have been very sort of deferential oftentimes to retailers, um, but retailers are also sometimes, at least given the way the system is moving, they can create some problems. Tell me, tell us a little bit about, you know, again, speaking from the position of the brand, what are some of the things that happened in the retail environment that that made doing business as, 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 as normal difficult, had to force changes on the status quo, help explain some of the, the moves or, or that the, maybe some of the conflict that happens between brand and retailer that the consumer may not understand? Yeah, it, it's a great question, Ariel. And, and I've, I've been at this long enough to see the, uh, the yin and yang of both and, and, and the power plays in both. And it, it really is unfortunate because I'm an eternal optimist like you, and I love this industry, and, and I think it, it, it's got tremendous potential, and, and we can make it great. We really can. But, you know, the history is a little bit that the brands would come in and be heavy-handed, some of the brands, and, and this is not to generalize all of them, some brands could be heavy-handed and make demands, demands on space, demands on how much the retailer had to purchase, um, demands that the retailer had to take certain items that didn't sell as well in order to get ones that really sell well. Um, and then what happens in life is that things flip and the retailer then becomes on top because there's too much product from the wholesale side of things and business isn't as good and now the retailer can can push the brand around a little bit um, and then conversely again the brand gets pushed around and you know the, the retailer can say okay I'm gonna charge you rent now for my space that wasn't a common practice but it happened uh, the retailer could say you must as a condition of doing business with me agree to do my marketing program here which I'm valuing at X dollars and you need to pay 50% or 70% of it, you know, the value of, of what it was, it was hard to justify. It was hard to verify. We didn't know. But if you wanted to be in that store, they, they held all the cards, so you did it. You know, and so that went the other way. And then again, it bounced the other way where the brand said, you know what, we'll just open our own stores. So to me, this was all senseless. I don't see, it should never have been a zero sum game where one won and one lost. It should have been a real good partnership. And I, I think going forward, 
you know, hopefully both parties learn and, and they can share and they can do best practices together and realize that, you know, if you're in a partnership with someone and the deal is one-sided, it's not good for either party. So let's let's ask ourselves why this happened. Now, the thing that comes to mind for me initially is maybe there was too many watches made or too many brands such that there was only so much retail space and retailers needed to make decisions, sometimes heavy-handed decisions about um, how to value that space. Um, you know, brands sometimes produced more product that can be sold. So even if the brand was an important brand that people liked, um, there was an oversaturated product. It just seems to me that too much of something, either product or brand, and not enough retailers or a developed market or interested consumers caused the problem. And it was, uh, I don't want to use, say, the word dumping, but the idea of pumping too much product into a market that wasn't ready to receive that product, wasn't ready to sell that product, and wasn't ready to market that product. Yet there was this idea of you just, you put more brands, you put more watches in there, something good will happen. That's what it seems like. Am I right or wrong? Well, certainly, you know, the watch companies suffered at different times. They were they were not prepared for the Chinese market, you know, drying up, um, and they had already uh, put a lot into production. You know, there's a long, you know, in this industry, it's a long production cycle. Things aren't made overnight, so you have to anticipate, and and sometimes you can't react. So yes, there was there was too much product. There was tremendous pressure on the brands. What are they going to do with all this product? Um, and they had to move it, and they had to get it out there. So. Um, you know, in in the end, it, it always comes down to supply and demand. If there's too much supply and not enough demand, the the thing that I think the brands needed to look at is, okay, on one hand, we can dry up supply and we can buy back watches or we could produce less, but how about also look at the other hand on promoting more and creating more demand? To me, that's the healthier solution. Absolutely, and and I think that. But the interesting thing there goes back to what I said, and I and I was trying to be to a degree uh, provocative in my statement. But I I do see a real hostility towards communication. You know, I I oftentimes remind brands that the reason that you are so excited about a brand like Rolex and their performance, all that, because they spend money on marketing. And you look at the watches that sell the most, and they're the same ones that spend the most on marketing. And it's like they all want like a like a like a get rich quick like uh, uh, scheme to to help them. They all want to believe that there's this fantasy way of of getting watches on consumers. Like you're gonna put a watch on some celebrity and take a picture, and all of a sudden, you know, everyone's gonna to clamor to get one. Like like they think that there's these tricks, and this is an industry that constantly constantly pushes this notion of doing it the right way, taking your time, um, you know, like legitimacy through history, you know, slow is the right way, cautious decision making, and that and that has worked very well for them. Yet when it comes to marketing, it's like their mentality is the exact opposite. They want to get rich quick they want th they want overnight success they want to rush things they want to underfund things how is it that the same people that make these great decisions about how to R&D and manufacture a product make such poor decisions that are actually the exact opposite of what they should be doing in terms of mentality when it comes to advertising and marketing and 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 this is i don't think we're going to get any answers but i think through conversations like this we create the idea that they need to be asking themselves these questions, they need to be taking seriously these, these, these deficits because they realize that, that, like you said, if you want to produce as many watches, no problem, but you have to create demand for them. If you don't, you're going to get yourself in this position all over again. Yeah, I mean, I mean, 100%. The, the best solution would have been to create demand for, for what at the moment was an excess in production. All that's telling you is that our demand is has shrunk or, or isn't matching our expectations. So what do you do? do? Do you just destroy the watches or buy them back or produce less or do you, or do you create more demand? And I'm sorry, it's, it sounds very simplistic, but I've seen it work. You know, it's not simplistic. I've, seen it work, I've seen it work in the past uh, with the stories I told you about at Movado and Concord. And I see it work in the present with Rolex. Every study I've seen and every brand I've seen shows that that brand spends more on advertising than anybody. They do. So, so is it any surprise 
you know, when I turn on the, the Masters uh, golf or the U.S. Open tennis or whatever, and I see Rolex, 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 okay? No surprise that they're That's not like, free, okay? Those, go those golf tournaments, they make enormous amounts of money. They're not just like, oh, Rolex, we like you guys so much. Please put your name everywhere. That That is a expensive, complicated marketing relationship designed to create awareness and a certain level of lifestyle status for a brand that, as you said, translate into obviously popularity and sales. Exactly. And if you notice, they're not pushing technical in those ads. No. In fact, if anything, Rolex doesn't talk about their product enough. They're talking lifestyle. You know, it seems to me that they have their finger on the pulse of the real motivation of why people buy these watches. Um, I, so I, I hear you. Yeah, I, I, I think I think that, you know, you made a comment that, you know, that the slow and the steady worked. I, I kind of counter that and say, you know what? Our industry needs to take a look at why we're not getting market share and increasing sales of luxury watches. And and you and you would argue that it is as a result of not enough activity. How do you convince them of that? Because you and I seem to be on the same page that they're just not doing enough, they're underinvesting and they're not taking it seriously. That sounds like a very specific statement that they should understand and they need to make a budgetary decision that they have to spend more it's going to be a little bit scary at the beginning but ultimately there's all these success stories what about that message that we're giving them doesn't sit well with them why does that leave a bad taste in their mouth I don't know if it leaves a bad taste in their mouth but, but uh, for some reason it seems to me they can't see what's right in front of them you know, uh, you know and I don't, I don't know why you know, again, I think that um, there's constraints on finance, and 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 there's maybe maybe too many people making decisions in the big groups on these type of things. I'll give you a story, and this goes into exactly what you're saying about um, creating demand to sell more products. I was meeting with a brand a few months ago here in America, a European brand. Everyone knows them, and we were having a private discussion, and they were saying how they were concerned because they're trying to revitalize the American market, but there was all this unsold inventory at retailers, and they were like, what do we do with it? And so I said, hey, here's an idea, guys. Why don't you create advertising content to push those watches that are unsold, that are still compelling, so you create demand so that you know people buy them, and therefore you have you can sell off that unsold stuff even if it's at a discount it doesn't matter you're getting it out of the market it's not there so a lot of the gray market issue goes away and when you have new mar product coming in you can be a little bit more diligent on making sure that that there's a there's a maintenance of the retail price and that seemed to make total sense to me and they just sort of they just sort of responded like we don't understand why would something like that work and i was like do you guys have any any other solutions they're like no and so you're right. There's this weird block, or maybe it's a, a, a an educational difference. But when presented with a very obvious solution, their first reaction is, "Wow, that sounds like it costs money." And in my mind, I'm like, "So does buying your watches." Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I even you know, if you look at it and say, "Okay, so if a luxury brand charged three hundred dollars more a watch." Is that really going to make a difference? And if they, but if they put all that money into advertising, it may make a difference. Which, you know? which, so, which they're not necessarily – okay, so let's let's wrap this up. We've been going for an hour, and I love these conversations. I hope people also enjoy them. Um, I want you to talk directly to the consumers out there, and I want you to say three things. Can you think about it for a second? Okay. Three things that they need to know about what it's like to do business from the management side – in the luxury watch industry, clear up a misconception, uh, help them, you know, be a little bit sympathetic, um, give them a tip on how to best shop. Three things that every collector, luxury watch consumer, you feel should know that they probably don't right now. That's quite a challenge, Ariel. I'm good at coming up with challenging <laughs> questions. Well, the first thing I would tell your your um, readers and your listeners who love fine watches is that they should buy watches that speak to them, that they shouldn't worry that 50 people on the webs, on the, on the chat rooms or uh, Joe Schmo editor or whoever it is said something. If they love the watch, that's the reason to buy it because it's a luxury item. If it's going to give them happiness, it's going to make them feel good about themselves. 
that's all they need. So I would get off of this justification. I, I see in the luxury business, a lot of people feel the need to justify an expensive purchase. You know, to say, well, I spent 10000 because, well, it's handmade, and it's this, and it's that, and it's that. But the bottom line is if they love it, that's all the justification they need. So that, that's number one thing Excellent I would advice. say. Excellent advice. I totally agree with you. Number two. <laughs> uh, number two. As, as far as um, the business goes, I will say that the business um, has been fun. Uh, from, from my perspective, I, I've got to travel all over the world. I met celebrities I never would have met. Um, I, we did events. I, I met interesting people. And um, I, I had a blast, and I'm having a blast in, in this industry. And, and my, my mission now with my training programs and other things I'm doing is to try to help the retailers tackle today's environment. So, um, you know, that's what I would just tell them about my career. It's been a blast. I fell into it uh, completely unexpectedly and uh, must have done something right because I had a, uh, some good success for these three decades and, and continue to have it. So it's been a blast. It's, it's a fun industry to be in. Um, and what is your third question? So, so I'm going I'm to take what you're saying and, and turn it in that sort of uh, prescriptive advice. And, and again, correct me if you think I'm saying this wrong. You're saying that in your job you had fun and you had a lot of great experiences. What I want to sort of tr tr transform that into is, hey, consumers, buy watches from brands – that you feel are legitimately having fun, meaning the people working in there are enjoying it and having a good time, and that when you're experiencing the product, you yourself feel like you're having fun. If you you can't take fun out of this experience, if you do, you're not going to have a very good experience. So so look for fun and be attracted to fun because that's where there's probably good ideas, creativity, and people like Paul. Well, thank you. I I you know. Fun and success, to me, go hand in hand. If you're not having fun at your job or in your business, I'm not saying you're not working hard, but it can be fun. At Zenith, we had more fun than, than, than I ever had at any other company. We, we laughed a lot, and we did very well. So, yes, that same joy that's in the creation of the product. I mean, nobody needs these products. We're not saving lives. We're not, you know, uh, stopping wars. So this is a fun product. It's a luxury product. And it should give you joy. Okay, number 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 three in terms of uh, of advice, and these are these are all great things. And advice for your clients? Uh, just again, things that you think people need to know to help them reduce the mystification of this world, to help them make better product decisions. I mean, what you said about buying products you like—it's a mantra that I've said many times. So thank you. Um, you help them learn about what brands to be gravitated to. I mean, I, I agree. If a brand looks too serious, like they're not having a good time, you go into a store, everyone looks like they're kind of unpleasant, just stay away. People you want to people are attracted to fun, find people and buy things from people who seem to actually be enjoying themselves. So these are great pieces of advice. One more one more thing along those lines. One more thing along those lines. For your clients who love watches, I would say um, that they should buy a watch that fits their lifestyle, that looks good on them, that fits their wrist. In other words, if the trend is for big watches, but they have a smaller wrist and they don't like the way a big watch looks, that they shouldn't give in to a certain trend. Um, and they should buy, I like to buy, I mean, this is for me. I'm not a flamboyant person, but I gravitate more to the classics. But I do that in my clothing and I do that in my cars. So I always draw the analogy uh, that, you know, I don't want to be that guy that looks back at a photograph 20 years from now, you know, and says, what was I thinking? <laughs> what was I wearing? You know what I mean? So I like to buy things that have a classic, timeless appeal. I don't say that's for all of your listeners and readers, but that just gives you a little insight into, into my feeling. You know what I hear here? And again, this is, I'm, I'm trying to sort of package these, these words of wisdom. I hear, if you don't know what watch to buy, take a look at your wardrobe, take a look at what you're driving, and find a watch that matches that. Yeah, because because you don't want to make an investment in a watch that you you looks good today, and then and then a week from now you're saying, you know, I don't really want to wear it. It doesn't fit this purpose. It doesn't fit that purpose. 
you know, unless you're fortunate enough to be able to have many watches and wear one for each occasion. But if you're going to buy your first better watch, you know, I think you should buy something that's more on the classic side of, of the equation and that you can wear in a wide multitude of occasions. You could wear it to work, you could wear it to the beach, you could, you could wear it with jeans. And I, and I think you'll be very happy with that first better watch because you'll get a lot of use out of it and you, you, you'll, you'll wear it. And if you don't wear it, what's the point? No, this, this is actually really good and I never quite would put it that way. And again, your, your training background makes you ideal to make these statements. You know, this is similar to the first thing you said about buy something you like, but that's just sort of generally like don't buy something because someone else says it's cool. Buy something because you genuinely like it. We're adding to that to say when you're choosing between two different watches or three different watches, a great way to, to sort of make a deal breaker is to basically say, or tiebreaker, I'm sorry, a, a great way of, of doing that is to say, okay, okay, I like these things. But which one of these things is going to fit my lifestyle and the way of determining what your lifestyle is most simply, especially as a guy, is look at the way you look in clothing and look at the things that you, you choose as other items that have a style. Cars are a great example. Not everyone has a car. Maybe it's the house you live in. Maybe it's uh, some other accessory you have. But if you, if you are failing to know which is the next watch to add to your collection, find the one that visually um, or, or, or technically meaning if you're an outdoors person, don't necessarily buy a dress watch. If you go outdoors a lot, get something to put up with it. But but actually ask yourself what fits into your life. It's so simple, yet I don't think that many people think of it that way. Where did you come up with this wisdom? Well, <laughs> I don't know that it's wisdom, but it's my own personal it's my own personal values. I'll give you an example going back to cars. You know, I live in New York, uh, I, and, uh, you know, the traffic here is horrible. Um, horrible. I would love to have a, I'd love to have an, uh, a manual transmission car. <laughs> but I know, I know I would love it for about a day, and then I, and then I would hate it. So you know, I, I look at things like that. I, I like things that work with my lifestyle, blend in seamlessly, and I, and I enjoy them. And it has to fit with my look and my life. So that's just how I do it. <laughs> I love it. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Uh, my guest has been Mr. Paul Ziff. Uh, his current project is Mad Paris. That's mad-paris.com. It's a Rolex and other luxury watch customizer. Paul, thank you for giving us a little bit of insight, a little bit of just sort of watch talk about um, your experience of the industry. Um, I think you've you've given people some good information, things to think about, and we'll look forward to talking to you next time, okay? My pleasure, Ali. I really enjoyed it.